Starbucks Dude, dark I, roast. Agreed. I'm going to just put this <laughs> over here. Everything sounds pretty hot. Does that sound super? That's just me. Is it like louder or? I mean, it's maybe louder in your headphones. But the, the level levels is? Are, the levels are the same. Yeah. Uh, which one is my headphone? Can you just knock it down like a chest? Chesting. <laughs> <laughs> is chesting different from testing? Chesting. Chesting. Um, is it, you got it? Is it good? Um, Not yet. Okay. To bypass high-level security, determined mules are prepared to go to I extreme just, lengths. I got these clips that I wanted to okay. play. Bullfing. Bullfing is when you tie drugs in a balloon or condom and you stick it in your rectum. Right. No. Okay. Well, that's the educational part of the show. Well, li- listen. I I realize there was no context to that. Um, one of the things that just likes the idea of sticking things up. I did. Well. You know, and we, and we're back. Okay, I guess Welcome. we are. Welcome to Recovery in the Middle Ages, that the note. podcast about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. I'm Nat. I'm Mike. And boy, do we have a, have show, a show for you. For you. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, you know what? I'm not doing that anymore. You're not going to do it? <laughs> I don't think so. All right, fine, fine. We'll, right. we'll discuss this at the business meeting. Okay. Today on RMA, Mike returns from his sojourn to Pittsburgh, or? Uh, also known as the Paris of Appalachia, the City of Bridges. Steel City, the Dirty Berg. We're <laughs> not going to call it the City of Champions. The City, uh, no. The Pit, Iron City, River City, Blitzburg, Sixburg, or the 412. The or he- 412. Or, or hell, hell with the lid off. I don't know. Some, or, um, That's, I like all those names. Oh, here's the Latin. Ben, ben, <laughs> ben, <laughs> benigno numine yeah. comes from the Latin motto. It's generally translated as with the benevolent deity. Uh, or by the favor of heaven. That's anyway. That's a lot of words for Pittsburgh. So that's Pittsburgh, and yeah. we discuss the documentary "One Little Pill" today on a very special edition of R M A. Yeah, Yay. man. Welcome back, and visit us at middleagesrecovery.com. dot com. You're talking to them via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, Apple Podcast, YouTube, and more. Join the discussion on our exclusive and private Facebook group. Things have been hopping there. Yeah, I had a long exchange with another deadhead yesterday we geeked out over uh, the grateful dead for a little while that's that cool yeah. and and that's like what we we love about this um this social media as the kids call it yeah is it you can really interact <laughs> with fans kids call i think most people call it that Dude, the, now. Ki- the kids yeah everybody calls it I social media. So. Yeah. it's not a buzzword anymore is it like email like what is this email <laughs> that's um, risque even for the internet <laughs> and uh so if you need to talk we're, we're happy to talk to you guys and share our experience, strength, and hope with you. Um, Barf. I, I want to implore you guys, though, to... Uh, I don't mind if you ask us, like, technical questions about how medications worked for us or <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and I have experience, clearly, and so does Mike in this in these arena, but really, 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 we are not doctors. And um, I really want you guys, if you're having a serious problem with the medication you're on or not on and you want to get on it or you, you know 
Or if you want to know how heroin will work in your body, perhaps we're not the best people to ask. Yeah, because the answer is it won't work in your body. It's just bad. Don't freaking do it. Um, but we're happy to, you know, um, be there. And um, it makes our day to hear from you guys. So please write us on there. Join the group. Um, great reviews will be read on the show. So open your Apple Podcast app or iTunes. Search for our show. Click on the Drunk Monk the drunk monk scroll down to where it says reviews and then write a review give us five stars and say how much you love us yeah also uh new merchandise is available well it's the same merchandise but it's now easier to purchase so i, I just so for those of you that. who have reached out uh and asked me for shirts and whatnot i would steer you over to middleagesrecovery.com click on the shopping cart uh and it's that easy to support your favorite yeah. show buy a t-shirt do we have anything else? No, but um, <laughs> we're looking for ideas too. Buy the t-shirt. Um, we're we, gonna have mugs. Yeah, mugs are. We're gonna do mugs. I want to do like I'm drawing a blank. I was about to write Jeff D, our um, merch guy, uh, and a oh. good fan of the show, and just ask him like, what should we do? I don't know what we're gonna. Else to we're print. gonna do coins. Uh, yeah, that's RMA coins and keychains. Yeah, like that, the NA keychain. It's gonna be cool. It sounds yeah. like we're doing shtick, but I, I think I actually <laughs> want to do that. So. Um, stay tuned for that. We're going to do like, um, we have a Patreon account that we haven't really set up, but the idea would be getting these coins for each month that you're a member, just like a recovery coin. And, um, it's a really great idea and uh patent pending. So don't believe me, we're, we're coming up with ways that you can support the show financially because we, need it. we, uh, we've know, been uh, reaching out to some, um, some people to help uh, with the marketing and getting us out there a bit more. So there's more of us to go around and I'm realizing just uh, how expensive that is. It's surprising how much it costs to, um, to do this. Yeah. Really, I mean, we've been doing it on our it. own this whole yeah. time and I'm a marketing guy, but I, I mean, I'm not a podcast only. I guess now I'm a podcast marketing guy because of the show, but <laughs> it's, um, a, it's a labor of love. It is a uh, labor nonetheless and love. Yeah. Um, so also, yeah. um, if you have a compelling story or any story really that you want to share with us, just head on over to um, middleagesrecovery.com, fill out the UR story form on the website, and you can hear your story read on the air. And in fact, do we have a story today? We have a story. We, we haven't really discussed how we want to go about like reading this. Are you just going to read the whole thing? Or sure. I, mean, I'll, I mean, I'll stay back. We could switch paragraphs. I don't know. That sounds like makes it. All right. We don't have don't to do that. Why don't you read it and then okay. uh, we'll see how it goes. Okay, this comes from Grant. I'm not sure where Grant's... Uh, oh, well, I have an idea. Okay. Um, okay, Grant's... Are you going to drink that muscle milk? Are you going to open that? I'm Why don't so you hold it closer to the mic? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's better. Isn't it ASMR? <laughs> All right. All right. Okay, Grant's story. Drinking put me in the hospital when I was 12. Eesh. It took another 38 years for me to admit to myself I had a problem. When I finally came to terms with my addiction, I was 50 years old, married for 22 years, and the father of two young adult children. My college years at the University of Wisconsin allowed me to hide in plain sight with respect to drinking and other things. Uh, as with every college in the U.S., heavy drinking was the norm. Uh, and I fell in with the East Coast kids who introduced uh, me to the Grateful Dead and all that comes along with that scene. Yeah, when that happens, it's <laughs> like going pro, man. You, you, you definitely... It definitely things take a turn for the heavy. Yeah. What side note though? I know yeah. there are so many deadheads who are now sober because that scene just attracted so many. Oh yeah, you know people that got into drugs and everything when they were kids, and um, 
So the like the wharf rats, which is the deads, the people who survived, yeah, right? They of course, still found yeah. out they loved the music, and then they were like, "How can I right continue to support this and yeah. uh, not well, kill myself?" I mean, the wharf rats. You know, I think we ragged on them for for something they said on their Facebook page a couple episodes ago, but they really are a good organization. Well, you're the only wharf rat I've ever met. Yeah, I wouldn't even really consider myself one. You're not a sober deadhead. Well, I've never so, so really gone to dead stuff when I was sober. You know. It's, so is that like a quadrangle is a rectangle, but it's not a square? Or something, something like that. Or I like, I, yeah. A square is a quadrangle, but it's not a rectangle. Same thing. Right. It's exactly like that. Completely um, different. The, <laughs> so the wharf rats show up at all the dead and dead related shows and they have a table in the back and they have a yellow balloon that they hang over the table, which is not filled with nitrous. I was about we'll to get say, to that, we'll get to that later. nitrous today. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, you can go there and, they, and then they have like AA meetings during set breaks uh, behind the stage. Or, you know, this is stuff I find out now, yeah. now that the dead have not existed for 25 years. But they still do this at uh, dead and company shows. And Did they announce like, uh, do and they used to do this, at, they do this at weddings. I have a friend who's had a wedding band and he told me that they would say, um, if there was someone in the crowd who was AA, they would tell the person to announce, um, my friend Bill needs to talk outside or a... Or I need to talk outside. If my friend Bill could meet me in front of the mm. uh, the wedding reception, that would be great. And that's like something that oh. happens at weddings. I never heard of that. I've never heard it either. Maybe I, they did it at dead shows. No, definitely not. Nobody gets on the stage. Not coming from the stage. <laughs> not coming from Jerry Garcia. No. <laughs> no. No. He, he struggled with the opiates himself. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I, okay. It seemed like I managed to keep things in check during graduate school in California in my 20s as I was getting to know the woman I later married. It was in my 30s when we had kids and I began buying extra beer and keeping it hidden in the garage mm-hmm, and then too. switched to cheap vodka for the cost, calories, and ease of bottle disposal. Yeah, it's cost-benefit analysis. Right. Exactly. You know, uh, Alcoholics are very crafty that way. Um, I don't think I'll ever have a handle on why I started drinking more and hiding it. Boredom, work anxieties, they took on increasingly public-facing roles that didn't sit well with my introverted self. Uh, but it's clear that's when things got out of hand. Once you start hiding your consumption of any substance, the normal rules about where and when and how much is appropriate no longer apply. I would agree with that statement. Yeah. 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 I'm, uh, I'm really identifying with this. Uh, after years of keeping my secret of drinking hidden from friends, colleagues, and even my wife and children, it finally caught up with me at work when someone reported having smelled alcohol in my breath. Ooh, that happened to me. Mm. More than once. As the public affairs and governmental relations executive at a financial services organization, I knew part of my job was to serve as a role model, and it was incredibly embarrassing to have to have a conversation about alcohol with my boss. I was so ashamed I didn't even tell my wife at first. Mm. Yeah. I've been there. Uh, initially I tried to keep my recovery just as secret as I had my drinking. I feared admitting my problem and asking for help would harm the image. I wanted to project of myself as a good husband, father, and leader at work. I feared treatment would require a residential stay and would make my problem more visible. Uh, I feared people, I'm just skipping ahead a little cause this is kind of long. I feared people would think I was weak because I couldn't handle alcohol in a culture where drinking is normalized and so much a part of our everyday lives. I feared that when I stopped, people would think that I'm dull. I think all of us uh, wow. can identify a lot with that paragraph. A hundred percent. I think he's telling my story. It's like, um, I mean, this is where, where the stigmatization of, of addiction is really a kick in the balls because it, it, it makes you suppress and hide all that stuff. Because you were just saying this same thing. I was. Um, regarding your work trip, I think. 
When was I saying that? Um, I don't remember. Over text? Oh, yeah. Earlier? <laughs> I think something Shit. like that. But yeah, talking about how, you know, oh, we were talking about it over text. Like, why do we have oh, yeah. to feel like right. we're the assholes? When yeah. I got angry about it. Yeah, frankly. you were pretty. And I had to feel like, <laughs> is this going to be a resentment? I'm going to drink over this <laughs> now that we're tandem sponsors. Right. Which is something else. We're going to talk about that in a, in a future episode. Yep, uh, I'm, I'm going. Yep. Uh, not surprisingly, my DIY strategy for recovery did not serve me well. I was frightened when I finally realized I needed to drink in the morning just to keep myself from feeling sick. I relapsed and returned to drinking several times during the first year. I lived in constant fear of being found out again and was often preoccupied with thoughts about interactions at work that might have revealed my drinking. Mm. In the end, drinking led to a less than voluntary resignation. Yeesh. Mm. That's rough, man. Yeah. Family was horrified. I was unemployed with one child in college and another soon on the way. My wife feared having to explain my situation to family and friends. We were both worried about whether we would have to move out of our home. It broke my heart when my son, still in his first year of college, offered to transfer to a local community college, move home, and work to save money and support the family. Wow. So how did you get out of it? Listening to RMA or was there something else? Um, we're getting to, yeah, I guess unemployed and living apart from my family in a recovery residence, sort of like a halfway house to support people in recovery. I had nothing but time to ponder the damage I had done and to think about how else, or rather how my family was coming to terms with the fact that I had prioritized alcohol over all else that I had put them in a financial and physical jeopardy without their knowing. And that I had not been fully present for them over the years. Uh, when desperation finally led me to fully commit to professional help and peer support, I enrolled in an evening program and learned that outpatient options can be just as effective as residential treatment and far less disruptive to work and family life. Mm. Yeah, that the outpatient, I did that as well. And Intensive outpatient, IOP, they call it. Uh, yeah, done it. Mm, I was at five different ones until I finally got it right. Um, that's so true. I did the same thing. I avoided inpatient until I got kicked out of three different uh, outpatient <laughs> services. And then it was forced on me by my uh, probation officer finally. And they're like, you need it. The way they say it is they go, um, you need a higher level of care. And and the interesting thing about that is what one thing that I, one takeaway I got from this movie that we're going to be reviewing is that the uh, the success rate of inpatient or outpatient mm. rehabs is uh, is very low. Yeah, but yeah, it was something like five out of a hundred. Yeah, keep sending people yeah. though, right? Somebody makes money off that. Okay, uh, I was prescribed medications I hadn't known existed that suppress cravings in early recovery. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Finally, yeah. you got somebody that understands how this works. I was uh, introduced to a wide variety of virtual and in-person peer support resources. I found to be vital. <laughs> vital. <laughs> oh, that's a new word. Vital uh, for maintaining my continued well-being. I discovered recovery is possible and that the mental and physical rewards are worth the work. Most importantly, I learned from the people I've come to know through my experiences that the common stereotypes I clung to, even in my own active addiction, are wrong. Those of us who subs- <laughs> suffer, from- suffer from substance use disorders, I think that's what SUDs are, truly do come from all walks of life. Sorry, I, I have it's apparently like reading shit, with my my, son. shit in my mouth today. <laughs> Anyone bold enough to ask around will be hard-pressed to find someone who says they have no stories of addiction in their family. Uh, people who suffer from substance abuse disorders are not weak. We struggle mightily with mental and physical effects of addiction that often overwhelm our most sincere desires to quit, and none of us set out with the intention of becoming addicted. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, that, I, man. I think a lot of people will identify with a lot of what you said. And um, I, I feel like I had the same, 
I feel like my story is almost identical. Right. Because I was schmucking around in these outpatients and inpatients until finally, for some reason, at the last outpatient I was at, the um, the psychiatrist who they make you see um, was like, have you tried naltrexone? And that was at the outpatient? Yeah. That was my outpatient. The inpatient places pushed Vivitrol, which is an injectable, mm-hmm. long-release uh, form of naltrexone and you, that that was their big thing do you know what i learned about vivitrol is the reason that that is so favored in in these situations is because there is a patent on vivitrol uh-huh. so the amount of money that could be made giving vivitrol versus naltrexone which is a yeah. pill which has no patent on it sure it's about fifteen hundred dollars yeah, a month exactly because I, I remember looking at my bill luckily my insurance covered it but that shot which essentially inoculates you against uh, using opiates and it really knocks down your craving. So, but I was not pres- effective for alcohol though. Yeah, in that when it's administered in that way, it but can't let- block it. It it not it doesn't block it like opiates, but it does something to your um, craving center, mm. um, which was explained to me by a brain scientist at one of my inpatients with diagrams I didn't understand, and it was really interesting. Mm. Um, but I was prescribed naltrexone daily to take, plus something called a campersite or camp roll, and both of these work towards, you know, blocking opiates, even though at the time I wasn't addicted to opiates, but it was really for my cravings. And if mm. I took those things, I st- right after my OD, I did, I started using this. Um, but since my OD was not from, uh, didn't happen after a period of long-term opiate use, I didn't go have withdrawals when I woke up. Oh, that's interesting. So I didn't need like, I wasn't on a run, you know, I just got it that day for the right. first time in years right. and it killed me. Um, but so when I was finally <clears throat> went back to see the doctor, he's like, we got to do something, you know, have you ever tried these, you know, this medications? And of mm. course I said, yeah, I've tried naltrexone, but I don't know what this camperol is. And so in any case, I gave myself to, the medical program, you could say. Right. And that's when it finally, just like him, he finally got this life-saving medication. And it sounds to me like he's doing pretty good. Yeah. You know, especially yeah. if he's listening to our show. Right. I mean, that's an indicator of... Uh, strength and strength in your recovery program. You know, fortitude of let the me, soul. Let me ask you a question. I'm genu- genuinely curious about this. Knowing, as addicts do, um, that the propensity for uh, an overdose is so big after being abstinent for a period of time, why don't people just like chip the first shot or do like a, you know, a tiny amount? They why do, do they always go for the slam and then it's like, yeah, you well, know, lights out? Well, besides the fact that you're not exactly in your right mind, even if you have been sober, you're still kind of shaky. Mm. And But what happened to a lot of people is when they quit or they went to rehab finally, maybe they were getting... Uh, regular heroin, and when they came out and decided to relapse, it was all fentanyl. Oh, so even fentanyl. a chip shot, even like if you're used to shooting a like a, a a bundle or something, which is a gram of heroin, and then you come out and you're like, I'm going to chip away at it, and I'll take two tenths of a gram mm-hmm. or something, and you think you're being you know careful, but that's fentanyl. You die. So you, there's no getting. Do high. you build up a tolerance to fentanyl? Yes. Like the same way you do to heroin. And it's a serious problem. I actually have been talking to an old friend of mine who I was in one of my rehabs with. He, I keep in touch with him here and there. And he's, you know, he's back in trouble again with his use. And, uh, he, I said, man, just get on, like, go to the methadone clinic, like blah, 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 mm. get on Sabah. He goes, subs don't do anything for me because it's fentanyl. And I don't know if that's just oh, that's bullshit or 
um, if it really isn't effective at the doses they're prescribing. But I, I would imagine that soon enough, uh, if not already, that they have an effective dose for methadone uh, to help with those hmm. uh, withdrawals because fentanyl is just exponentially um, more addictive. God, that's scary shit, man. I, I mean, I, I don't like the sleepy drugs. Like, they're not, that's not my, never been fentanyl. my jam, but... Um, well, they put it in cocaine But now it's now. in cocaine. You know? I know. Uh, it's really crazy. And, and in, they just... Just out east here on the island, they they busted a a, a guy who was selling uh, rails of Xanax and yep. uh, and they were it was just fentanyl. It's pressed. They have yeah. pill pressing machines. It's fucking terrifying. And uh, they buy the fentanyl from China, China, and China, uh, China. That's how Trump <laughs> used to say it. Uh, Remember him? Whatever happened to that guy? I don't know. It's yeah. about Trump. <laughs> he's banned. He's banned from social media. Um, that's anyway, none of my business. Yeah. So, um. Tell me what you have been up to this week, Mike. Well, now that I'm employed again and more than a year out from my career at altering last relapse, I feel more comfortable sharing my story. That sounded natural. <laughs> wow. You just, but that, it's so extemporaneous this, of you. But you wrote that. Was that supposed to be you or me? No, this is yours. Did you write that you're employed again? Who's employed again? I was confused because <laughs> I think you wrote that and you meant that you're going back to work. That's how I took it. Because now you're going on I don't these know. trips. I, pull, I pulled that off somewhere. It's totally out of context. I don't know. Anyway, so I went to Pittsburgh. Damn it. And uh, <laughs> I don't even, I don't remember putting that in there. But. It was on the show uh, draft. <laughs> and I just, I was like, I got to have more stuff for Mike. Well, I mean, this is update. true though. I believe that the more people share the stories of addiction, the more likely it will be that someone who finds themselves in the situations we've all found ourselves in will ask for help without, wow, so that was not an English major that no. wrote that sentence. No, he did not. Um that's a copy pasta from who knows where. Sorry, guys, for the fuck up. Um, anyway, so I went to Pittsburgh for work. Yay. Hmm. Back to work. Back to work. It's not your first one back since the, the, since the COVID. It's certainly. my second one, and regrettably, my first one was also to Pittsburgh. No, I, I kid Pittsburgh. I like, <laughs> I like, I mean, you don't get a sense of the city when you're staying downtown after it's been closed for a year and a half. Right. You know, but I will say I, I stumbled upon Skid Row down there, and wow. Wow, they're still playing? <laughs> oh man if they are the band members look rather different than they used to um but kind of uh kind of kind of rough covid really really hit that city pretty hard i have no idea what it was like before because the last time i was there was right. like 12 years ago but a lot of people walking around a lot of obvious substance abuse going on um in the streets uh it, it almost seems as though the the police department down there is sort of given up well, where should the abuse, the substance abuse go on? Not, if not in the streets, in, your, in the privacy of in your privacy cardboard of your box. Own, your, <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, who am I to judge, right? I mean, it, but it was, um, it was a kind of, kind of eye opening. And, and even the hotel I was staying in downtown, the block that hotel was on, uh, there were like three or four businesses on that block that were open in October when I was there that were now shut. So, um, but anyway, so the, the, I was there for a mediation, um, in my day job as a lawyer and, um, the room we were in, in the, in the, um, it was the Hyatt, no, it was the Wyndham looking out onto the, uh, the, the cliff, I guess part of Pittsburgh is above this cliff across a river That's and cool. parts down below. Um, so that I was just staring at this this giant Iron City beer that was painted. Ha, did you take a picture? The whole time. Uh, yeah, I got a picture nice. somewhere. Um, I love getting your travel photos. It's almost like I'm traveling too and living vicariously. You know, I, I always send pictures of my food to my wife, which is less well received. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> she's like, I'm eating, um, you know, a cold <laughs> French fry out of the kids uh, right. dinner. And, you and know, you're at some I'm, fancy it's a nice sushi. But although this time I ate Korean out of a box. So Ooh. I made sure to send that picture. I say, like Look, Cor- I'm not eating high on the hog. Korean today. barbecue? Uh, it was some tofu something. It was, oh. it was good. Um, but you, you drink or no? You didn't drink. Oh, right? that. Uh, no, you didn't drink. No, I got ice cream. Instead. But how did you do it without being a member of AA in good standing? Like, you know, it's interesting. When I got to the city, I thought to myself, you know, maybe I should look up an AA meeting. And go, I think you should. Yeah, I you decided I'd it. rather not. I'd, I'd rather eat ice cream maybe and watch TV. So. That's what I did. Well, anything you put above your recovery, you're going to lose. So. I put frozen yogurt above my recovery. You did. <laughs> so plan on losing it when so you relapse. I'm like the I'm such like a nerd because some people will go to a new city and they will you know you know I do sightseeing if I if there's time and there's sights to see. Right. Um, there there was neither time nor much to see in downtown Pittsburgh this time around, but um, but I do try and make it a mission to find like ice cream or frozen yogurt because that kind of gets me through the hours Fro-yo. of after dinner to bedtime just on these quixotic quests like i remember detroit i hopped in a cab and i in an uber and i was seeking out these this frozen yogurt store in the middle of the hood it was like this That's crazy interesting was it from zagat guy um, the zagat restaurant guy i used to yelp. just yelp is the yeah, new zagat yelp maybe. is the thing um it was actually quite good the toppings were superb but um you should write a review. I should. On Yelp. I do write some Yelp reviews. But anyway, uh, so I didn't drink. But um, And then I had an uneventful night sleeping in, in the Renaissance Hotel, where, again, I, was, I believe I was the only customer. And then the next day uh, at the mediation, oh, several topics always come up at these work things. Uh, sports, of which I know very little to nothing, uh, and drinking, which you know I'm fairly well-versed <laughs> in that topic. I'd say you're an expert in um, drinking. But I was I was at the mediation with uh, a worker uh, worker uh, another lawyer who was from this company and I had when I first quit drinking I had to go give a presentation at this company's annual um, uh, conference mm-hmm. on a lake in Ohio and I was like thirty days sober and I remember being in my room before I went out to the dinner you know on stop the stop drinking subreddits trying to get some support right. you know. And, um, and then I went to, to dinner win. and this, this, this woman actually did not drink at all. And she, you know, you can say people give off a little bit of a vibe if yep. they're in the recovery thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And she was given off that vibe. And I thought that was great. Cause I just planted myself next to her and we talked, but it, the yep. topic of recovery never came up. Fast forward to this thing. And she's also at this mediation, same oh, company, okay. but different location. And, um, one of her coworkers, another lawyer, started talking about their favorite tequila, and they were showing pictures of the bo- handcrafted bottles. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like rolling my eyes, thinking, "Oh, can we just talk?" And so I started saying something like, um, "I said that's even when I was, I didn't say even when I was drinking. I said that stuff always tasted like shit to me, like you know." Right. And um, I get the stink eye from a cu- from the <laughs> the two of them, but but she was like very quiet, didn't mm. participate in the conversation, and so I'm even more convinced that she's got a, a yeah. little recovery ovary going on there. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yes. But uh, there's we're everywhere. People like it's us like are how do you broach that subject with somebody that you you work with on a professional level? You know. Yeah. It's, it's just you, you can't really just you know, say, Hey, can I talk to you in the hallway for a minute? Like, you know, I would just do it the same way. Like when we first met, Mm -hmm. uh, not first met, but when, when like, 
we were talking and I would drop leading questions or you make a comment that if they know it, right. they can take it and run with it. Yeah, yeah. I see you what know, you're saying. I drop yeah. little things and then you start to get the right responses and they're in the club. Right, right. Then you can say something more bold. Like, I kind of wish there was a secret handshake, you know? We could come up with one. You know, we're making our the own RMA program handshake. here. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're developing our own program. Yeah. And uh, one of the aspects of it is called Tandem Sponsoring. Right. Because uh, Mike and I decided that, you know, we didn't love the idea of someone like lording their pseudo experience over you mm -hmm. and like all of that shit. And I said, we should do like, we're like tandem sponsors. We right. support each other in recovery and we do recovery stuff together. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we thought that that was a little bit better. And that if you're going to have someone who's supposed to know more than you and help guide you, I want that person to be actually like qualified, um, not just someone with experience, mm -hmm. maybe both, you know, but when you're doing recovery with a partner, um, you're doing it together. You know what I mean? And it's, I think it, that's a better plan, you know, kind of like going to work out with a workout partner. That's how I saw it. Yeah. So that's, I think what we're trying to, I, I I've been thinking about this a lot this week and, and to me like the best um, parallel would be like scuba diving oh. because when you, when you go scuba dive, you scuba dive with a buddy. Gotta have a buddy. Right. But both buddies have that elemental certification. They have that first level of knowledge. Maybe one has a little bit more than the other because uh, there's, you know, advanced certifications yeah. you can get, but everybody has that basis of knowledge so you can help your buddy in an emergency. Yeah, Mentors are important. Right? So I that's, think. I'm it's still an inchoate idea that's yeah. crystallizing in my head, but I like it. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And, and I think there's always a place for a mentor. Sure. And maybe we work that into our program. I don't know. Um, yeah. Because there should be, I mean, I, the idea of like a big brother, little brother type of thing is great. But I think even if you do that, you should also, there should also be a buddy system. You know, and yeah. then you say, well, well, if somebody fails, the other one will go down with them. Well, you live, you know, you drown together, you swim together, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's carrying that analogy. <laughs> like, right. I'm running out of air. <laughs> Let's, <laughs> yeah. all right, all right. So anyway. ah, I didn't expect to talk about that, but okay. Um, Nat, did you take your last college course recently? Yes, I did. <laughs> and you know, uh, I couldn't remember if I, if, if this happened before the last show, did I already talk about this? Um, many of you may know because I talk about it all the time. Um, <laughs> I uh, was finishing college. I know I'm 42 and my first uh, year in college was 1996. But this is, uh, talk about quixotic. Uh, I've been going after this for a long time. You could say almost exactly 25 years. And, um, and I was thinking about it and I took my last final, I took, handed in my last paper and I got this feeling of just like, you know, I, I'm still like, I haven't gotten the official like thing where it says on my, uh, you know, student website, you know, yes, you have now qualified. Like it still says waiting for a final course. <laughs> that must be infuriating. But, um, and then I wrote this little thing on my, on my Google docs, you know, cause when I'm running or walking or thinking about the show, which I do all the time, I try and write things down that I'm thinking. And this is what I wrote down. Oh wait, where'd it go? Oh, <laughs> I finished my final paper and took my last exam for college. It's a we it's weird wanting to celebrate something that almost all of my contemporaries completed seemingly without issue 20 years ago. But nonetheless, I am excited. The degree, or lack thereof, was sticking in my craw for quite a long time, and I think it had a lot to do with my descent into addiction and feeling like I wasn't good enough, like I hadn't measured up, 
like a failure to launch, but I kept trying. I kept moving forward even when I got my DWI, and I had to drop out for about five years when I only had three classes remaining. I thought I would never go back, but when COVID hit, I saw an opportunity, and I took it, ran with it, and knocked it out of the park, motherfucker. I actually wrote that. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of sums up all of these complicated feelings I'm having. I want to I want to celebrate. I want to like, but then on the other hand, I'm like, you know, this is something everybody else did. You should celebrate because it's an incredible achievement. I mean, I mean just the trajectory of your life over the last few years has been amazing. We're, I mean, I'm on the way up. I went from, you know, basically lying dead in the back of my shop mm. to, you know, I got my car back. I guess like a country song played backwards. I got my wife back. I got my dog back. I got my Ooh, I kids like back. Country song played backwards. Uh, well, you got your self esteem back. Right? I got my self esteem back, and and I'm feeling really good. And um, I'm actually, you know, I, I I'm looking at the alumni association for like I really want to be like this has been missing from my life. They like, just want money from you. I've always wanted. It's fine. I will give them money if they make me feel good like this. Yeah. Like I want to say. That's my alma mater. I've always wanted to say alma mater, and here I am on our podcast using the word alma mater. Um, and uh, and I've got a graduation set for May thirteenth, and I'm um, I'm still nervous. I still have this feeling like they're not going to let me. Imposter like, syndrome rears its oh ugly head. Oh my god! Uh, total imposter you will be, syndrome. You will be allowed to graduate. You will get your degree. And did you know that this is a real parallel for the Joseph Campbell's you know hero's journey? Um, in that, you know, you go through the dark night of the soul and, you know, oh, yeah. you get the call to adventure, which is when after I came out of my OD, I had the call to adventure. Like I've got to do one of two things, lay down and die mm-hmm. or get the fuck up and make it happen. And I did just that. Um, and I just, I feel really great about that. You should. It's an um, incredible achievement. So, I mean, not only that, but I know you guys, I was talking about how I didn't know what was going to happen with my store. My lease renewal was coming up and I had to negotiate it to a point where it would make sense. And the great news I have is, man, we're going to re-sign this lease for another year. Things are going really great finally at the store. And um, I'm very hopeful. And it's going to give us this great studio space <laughs> at the shop for another year. And um, I'm more, just very excited. More episodes from the storeroom. You know? And, but like, what do I do with my life? You know? So now that all of this has happened, I mean, at least I know I'm at least going to be running the shop another year, but I want to take that next step. Um, you know, I'm going to have my bachelor's finally, like, what do I want to do? Um, I was looking at like, you know, I was interested in maybe a recovery coach certification or really MSW. an addict looking at a, <laughs> becoming a recovery coach. I, I know it's uh, <laughs> it's very um, stereotypical, but um, obviously it's something I'm uh, passionate about. And um, I don't know, I feel like it's pretty rewarding and it's something I could do along with some other stuff like marketing consulting. I'm like getting my feet out there. My the thing is you have all of these options that you didn't have available to you while you were using. Oh my God, no. You know, all I do is destroy relationships. You know, you give up the one thing and you can do everything. I don't ever think about how much money in lost opportunities. Don't think about that. Because <laughs> I was in some very good spots that I destroyed. You know, I was like chief marketing officer of this financial firm and um Stuff like that, marketing director of this. I had clients that was just, yeah. and I spent it all and I wasted those relationships and I have to move on from that. Yesterday's I, history, man. And I feel like this graduation, 
uh, is my moving forward uh, in my life. Finally, I can put this to rest. I can put that the addiction shit, everything I ruined. This is going to wipe it clean. I know it doesn't really do that, but um, I want it to wipe it clean and I want to move forward. You're a new you every day. Hmm. Life, life is what happens. Life is, is what happens when you're waiting for life to happen. You know if who you said have, that? Who? The somebody on Hill Street Blues. I but remember that from way back. If you when. put one foot in yesterday and one foot in tomorrow, you're shitting on today. That's another one. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I wrote a lot of stuff here. You and did. I, feel like I mean, I'm you're going to step up your running game. Your diet has evolved to the point where it doesn't resemble an eating disorder as much. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we we were talking about that. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think of my diet. You know, honestly, you think it's an eating disorder, and I'm just replacing one addiction with another. Well, That's I, I sent you the whack a mole gift yesterday. Yes, yesterday I, for Jeff, and I I heard you loud and clear. <laughs> so I mean, but I'm actually concerned about that. I don't. I realize I'm susceptible to that kind of behavior. So, um, well, you know what. It, yeah. Some people do things very intensely when they do them. And, uh, you know, I just think you're, you're putting the same intensity into that as you put into, you know, getting college done and, you know, making your business a success. And, you know, but sometimes you can kind of, with eating it's, it, or with anything involving like putting things into your body, it's always a tricky balancing act, man. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that was fun. I'm not talking about those <laughs> things. <laughs> I am such a 10 year old sometimes. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you put in your body besides food but hey, it's the long that's it's big it's your it's your business um so i don't know what do i think i don't know i can't pass judgment on your you know you i mean you basically tell me that you well, like I what i said run. you said you were going for a run last yeah. night and i was like after dinner and i'm like man if i ran it after dinner i would probably throw up and you're like well i don't eat very much yeah yeah well i could and i did run well i only eat like i said part of my diet plan is never eat uh, any more than you have to to not be hunger hunger pain. Well, having. that's not abnormal. I mean, that's yeah, but the like old Japanese way when they say you should eat like seventy percent. Yeah, so I do more like forty percent. But it, that's the idea. You, I work up a serious hunger where it's like painful, and then I eat, but just enough so that I'm comfortable again. But there's still that underlying hunger. And what that hunger does for me is it makes me hungry for life. It makes me want to do more things because you're still in that state of like hunting prey. Because Mania, we, uh, some call it. Mania, I do have, I have been <laughs> diagnosed with bipolar mania. Uh, and so... I'm not saying you're manic, uh, but... Uh, well, no, I mean, I doctors have said that. So okay. um, more than one. Well, uh, so I'm not going to... Anyway, agree but, or disagree with that, but um, I'm just trying to stay on this this high that I've been on this past. I don't know, like it's I've had my ups and downs, as you know. Like I do every so often, I will break down sobbing. Well, you have to take advantage of manic Nat to get to yeah. get the podcast worked. <laughs> well, yeah, I w- we wouldn't have. It's true. I listen. I'm a big fan of of your up phase. You know, but you haven't, you know, known me long enough, uh, intimately, so to speak, <laughs> to uh, to see how bad it can get when I'm down. Right. But I'm like really, really trying to guard against because now I'm trying to be hyper aware of the signs that I'm, uh, you know, headed in the other direction, and I try and keep doing healthy things. Like I'm trying to run more, like just to keep myself well, great. from falling into that. And I have to say. I love running. Wow, that's so good to hear. So many people don't. I mean, I always poo-pooed it. Like, who the hell wants to run? Like, running is what you do, like, to get ready to play another sport. 
sport. Like you don't <laughs> practice or running. Or to get away from the police. Yeah, or get away from the police. You're running away from yourself, whatever you want to call right. it. Um, but I really, really enjoy it. It's my like meditation time almost. That's like I can't wait to get out and just get some space, man, and just run, run, run. So I'm, I'm you know, really enjoying it. And running releases uh, the good endorphins. That's what I'm told. Right? No. So um, it's also recommended as uh, an activity to do in the Sinclair program, which well, is something we're going to be talking about at some point. Yeah, um, <laughs> Since we're 39 minutes in, into the show. Uh, all right. Well, let me just finish with this because this is related. Yes. My psychiatrist who, um, who prescribed those life-saving addiction drugs to me, he was the only doctor I've had that was telling me for my recovery, he wanted me to do 30 minutes each day of cardiovascular exercise. He Fantastic. said every, and I was like, you're insane. There's no way. I'm like, I can't do two minutes, you know? And, um, but that was part of his, he was like, no joke. There's no, you have to every day. This is part of your recovery. Make it so. Mm. Uh, and so I feel like I'm finally almost living up to that. I can, I've been doing like 15 minutes uh, because it's running. And apparently I'm running too fast, according to my runner friends. Well, just, how fast are you running? I don't know. Since I don't I'm one of your runner friends. 10.25, whatever that means. Like miles an hour? I guess. <laughs> That's pretty I, fast. Well, I don't... Ten, a 10-minute mile is not that fast. Well, I don't know. Understand these... Yeah, it's okay. It's, it, I don't understand the What stuff you feel comfortable I'm, at. I'm posting these things. It says 1.3 miles pace. That's the thing. 10 right. and 32 yeah, per 10, mile. 10 minutes and 32 seconds a mile. So I post that, and my runner friends are all saying... Or at least two have said so far. You're running too fast. No, I'm your runner friend, and I'm telling you that's not too fast. Finally, I mean, how, how how much do you weigh? 152 pounds. That's fine. Yeah, but just don't extend your mileage more than 10 percent a week. I don't know what that means. You mean increasing? Right. I've been pretty consistent. All right, we really have to move sorry, on. Sorry, we, uh, we can have this discussion a, later. So if you ever wanted to know what our phone calls sound like to each other, this is it. <laughs> it's basically how we spend all day texting. Um, all right, so we have our main discussion coming up after these words. And we're back. Hey. All less squirmy. Our seats. Oh, feeling so much better. And now we're going to uh, discuss this great documentary that I had seen before because I just watch endless recovery stuff. <laughs> and uh, this was one of them that is, is lesser known. It's called One Little Pill. And what's it about? What's, uh, what's it about? One Little Pill is about the Sinclair method. Um, so I'm going to read you the blurb that's on the Amazon uh, site yes, about the movie. blurb us. Five years after it saved her life, Claudia Christian, star of TV's Babylon 5, is featured on... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Claudia. Uh, yeah, I know. Anyway, is featured on Larry King Live talking about the Sinclair Method. Named after the doctor who spent 40 years studying alcoholism, one must simply take naltrexone one hour before drinking, and it will eventually extinguish the learned behavior of alcoholism loathsome. Mm. Alcohol, alcoholism, olism. That's, olism. that's a problem. On the, it's alcoholism, not alcoholism. Do yeah. you know that? Claudia's passion is to share this method and save lives. Yes, she's talking about pharmacological extinction. Yes. That is the, the word of the day, guys. Look this up on your machines. That does not mean to OD and die. Pharmacological extinction is what we're going for here. And that's, that's kind of the crux of what the Sinclair method does. Uh, developed by Dr. John Sinclair, who's a PhD. I don't think he's a 
don't think he's an MD. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Good point. Uh, he's also dead. He died in 2016. Oh. Well, that just goes to show you how useful this method is. I mean, the guy, <laughs> it's like when the Atkins die, guy died, you know? Yeah, but he slipped on ice and hit his head. And that somehow invalidates all of Atkins' yeah. work. I mean, well, they said they were, found a, a coronary occlusion. Yeah. <laughs> they found him like, yeah. just like an alcoholic. He had like bacon hiding yeah. in every cushion well, in the house. Yeah, but that was his diet. If, oh, he right, had a, right, right, if he had a donut in his pocket, that would have been... <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Atkins anyway. was big. So. Uh, unlike traditional treatments that require complete abstinence from alcohol, the Sinclair method allows you to continue drinking alcohol at the beginning of treatment. In fact, the success of the Sinclair uh, method depends on the continued consumption of alcohol in combination with the prescription medication, naltrexone. Um, when you take naltrexone prior to drinking, I guess the thinking is that it will block endorphins uh, from being released when alcohol is consumed. So if you block the endorphins, you don't get a buzz or a reward experience, and the alcohol does not make you feel the pleasure that drives you to drink excessively. Yeah. Uh, and over time, your brain learns not to associate alcohol with pleasure, resulting in reduced cravings and improved control control over alcohol use. Wow. Yeah. And it no lasts. AA doesn't like that. No. And, um, it, and it lasts and lasts. Once you pharmacologically extinguish, you know, it's, it's neuropathway relearning is how I term it. The pathways get strengthened in your brain when you drink and feel good. That's what we're trying to like get rid of. So if you prevent those pathways, so in other words, when you take naltrexone and then part of the method is you have to then take a drink, Right. it helps retrain your body that this doesn't make me feel good like it did. Right. And then you do that for a, you know, a little while, a few, a month, and then eventually your body has relearned to not, it's not getting your reward anymore. Mm. So you don't crave. And that's what's going on with me. That happened, you know, I, I didn't crave that anymore because- you know, I wasn't, uh, I didn't have those positive pathways in the, the mo- brain. The movie has a good um, animation of like, you know, little little alcohol things fitting into receptors yep. in your synapses and stuff. So it's a very visual explanation of what's happening. Um, I guess this, uh, naltrexone has been approved by the FDA for alcohol uh, d- uh, issues since 1994, which is a long time this thing's been out on the market. It has been out a lot. And, and I wanted to play this one clip. A new thing we're doing is playing clips here. And in the movie, there's a gentleman, it starts off with the guy trying this method. And I think on the second or third day of drinking with naltrexone, he says the following, and begin. Two. Tell you what, I'm going to do one more. So he's taking a shot, like on video. It's oh, Jägermeister. Yeah, I can yes. see if we've just had about that much of it. I'm, I'm waiting, I keep waiting for, for the feeling, and it's not coming. If I'm talking to somebody out there right now that is an alcoholic, you know what I'm talking about when you get that first drink that, like, oh, that felt good. You feel it from the top of your head and it goes right down your body through your fingertips. It's almost like your inside saying, thank you. That's what you needed. And then it's like, give me more. But when you don't get it, well, my point is, if this is how normal people feel every time they drink, why the fuck would you even drink? What is the point? My brain feels cheated right now. <laughs> so you see, he's going through, you know, now that he's taking the naltrexone and drinking, he's like, well, what happened to my good feeling that right. this used to do? 
So it's not a re- so so the re- the positive reinforcement you get from drinking yeah. and its effect on your body is not there. I don't love this method of playing clips. I think I have to find a better. I don't think it sounds that great. Yeah. Well, uh, whatever. It was worth a shot. Yeah. Um, you know, and but that's the Sinclair method, right? I mean, we're you're training your body to not and then what they say is um, okay, great that you're doing this for drinking, but you should also, when you don't take naltrexone, because you're only supposed to take it on your drinking days. Well, and that's sort of the, the controversy about, the, one of the controversies about the Sinclair method is they studied naltrexone uh, and its effect on problem drinkers uh, with alcohol use disorder, and they, they did concluded that it was ineffective. But, they were, but the, they, the way they studied it, it was administered, uh, you would get a, a a large dose at the beginning of every day. So you constantly had mm-hmm. this, this high level of naltrexone in your blood. That's what I had. And, and apparently that was not working for, for alcohol. Because um, it dampens pleasure for everything. For everything. So, right. so the Sinclair method is about you take it an hour before. Just You, you know you you're going to have a drink. You take it then and then uh, an hour before. But not on times when you're not, you know, that's interesting. When I saw that, I thought to myself, man... Um, I took it, I was prescribed it daily. Like it's normally prescribed now, not this entire right. method. And, um, and it did work for me, but I do remember feeling the, I mean, cause it kills cravings for everything. I quit smoking once I went on that. I just, <laughs> I didn't want to smoke anymore. It was the b- most bizarre thing, but I guess, you know, it's sort of like, man, if you have to stop the whole thing for a little bit to get your bearings mm. and then maybe come off it. So I don't know. It's yeah, interesting, though. But, I didn't- but it, it led to this sort of bizarre, I don't know, like par- parts of that made, made me uncomfortable because it led to this bizarre thing where like the woman who, what was her name? Chris, what's her name again? Claudia. Claudia. Claudia Christian. She like kept the pills in like a little silver vial she wore around her neck or was, something. And she's was- like, my friend just opened a bar, so I'm going to go down there and check it out and popped it. Yeah, you know, Trexone and went off to the bar, and I'm thinking, that's safe drinking. Though. I mean, is that recovery? Uh, what is that? I feel like it's a lot more like harm reduction. Yeah. Okay. Meeting people where they're at, where they are, uh, and in fact, one of the doctors that they're interviewing is pretty much what he says. He's like, "Listen, abstinence is really what we're going for, but you have to, you know, if you say to somebody." who's like regularly drinking in the middle of their addiction and the worst part of it, like let's say I was and where you're sweating in three hours, if you don't have a drink, you have, you can't say to them, the program is you stop drinking right now and never drink again. Right. Like you're losing a lot of, of fucking people that way. So, so, the, so the, this gives them a way to bring them along for the ride, maybe save their life, maybe save someone else's life because they're not driving drunk, you know? Yeah. And, and abstinence, if it comes, is supposed to come in around the back door. <laughs> and the, so it's the speak, latch grease. Right? <laughs> the latch is greased coming through the back. Because as, as your um, desire to drink, the reward for drinking diminishes over time. Right. Then you will, it'll eventually fall away on its own. Is that the thinking? Well, yeah, but you know? only if you, you can't just, like the point here I think is that you can't just do one thing. Like the Sinclair method is, you know, the, this one approach, but then what you do with the rest of your time, 
makes all the difference. So you have to build other neural pathways. Like they say in the documentary, mm-hmm. you know, go out and exercise, go That's play That's part a of game. the Sinclair method. Yeah. You have to do these endorphin producing activities like right. exercise. Like having sex, he said. I was oh, like, yeah. That was a weird thing to say. Like, Did Sinclair say that himself? Um, no, I... Maybe, yes, it was. He's a little creepy. I think it was him. Yeah, it's what's like, with the leather vest? Yeah. That's a weird He's thing. from, I think, Norway. Don't, doesn't he live in Norway or something? No, that was that other weird doctor yeah. who looked like, uh, yeah, I don't know. The Sinclair method It's scary people. Who are, um, <laughs> the, on the Sinclair Methods website, it says there are no meetings. They advertise that there are no meetings, chips, or higher powers with this program, although your provider may recommend some types of counseling. So is the counseling not obligatory? I don't think that it is. Uh, I think it didn't idea, come up in, in the movie. It doesn't. It sounded to me like it's not a, a holistic program in that it covers all aspects. It's like a tool toward, you know, they, they don't really cover like the support. I mean, you could probably, if you do the Sinclair method, you can go to Weight Watchers meetings. You probably get the same kind of results, you know, like you just need some kind of human connection support that's not associated with drinking on the Long Island Railroad, you know, uh, on your way home every night from the city, which uh, I used to stop at the bar cart and get a double scotch and sit right next to people and you can tell they were uncomfortable and sometimes I would chat them up. But in any case, <laughs> to get away from doing that, you know, um, and to keep doing, you know, but I would say, like, that's one of the things I would, as a recovery coach, which I am considering moving towards, I would be looking at a whole life change. The only thing you have to change to quit drinking and be happy is everything, right? Well, Every aspect right. of your life. Or, you know. or the stopping drinking gives you an entree into working on the other stuff. Would you call it an invitation, Mr. Uh, Churchill? Uh, right. Yes. Okay, right. Of it's course. It's an invitation. An invitation. Um, but, yeah. you know... Yes. So that's what you and I would think, but that's not really the Sinclair method, right? Because the Sinclair method, I mean, okay. So the two, the two different ways to look at it is the, that addiction is, is a biological neurological problem, which is true, right? Yeah. I mean, substance abuse changes the brain. Over time, the substance becomes a biological or a neurological obsession. Right. So the role of naltrexone or medication is to mute that obsession, but you're not dealing with the other threat which right. is the psychological component, the Gabor Mate, uh, PTSD, and all that stuff, the existential angst, if you will. Right. So I think it shouldn't be sold, so to speak, as an all-inclusive. Like, this should be a tool. Mm-hmm. This should be a way to get to something bigger, um, you know? It should be. The one thing I did notice, though, is they, they followed the stories of, you know, that, that guy whose clip you played and a couple other people, but none of them by the end of the documentary had actually graduated from the Sinclair program, even though several months had gone by. There was no pharmacological extinction going on. Everyone was still drinking. In fact, one of the last scenes of that guy who that you, that you played um, was him out at a bar with his friend, and, and they interviewed his other friend, and his other friend said, yeah, you know, he was uh, normally done a couple of beers and a couple of shots, and well, I'm like, okay, well, that's four drinks but that's on the, naltrexone. That's the goal of, of the Sinclair method is to finally be able to drink like a normal person. Mm. Like now, when you go and have that drink, you don't get that crazy, what do they call it in AA, the um, phenomenon of craving. Like that is the big bad wolf in AA, this phenomenon of craving. Your addiction is doing push-ups in the parking lot while you're mm-hmm. sitting there reading your uh, 12 and 12. But um, I feel like, I just lost my thought. It's okay. Um, You'll find it. In any case... <laughs> 
No, oh, it, it, it's it's just people want to drink like human beings, and this ah, is a way to do that. And this is where you and I had a little discussion yesterday, where I also started scratching my head, thinking um, because to me, where I am situated in my recovery, um, I have no desire to drink like a normal person. Right. I have no desire to drink at all because I just. I find that to be. I think that's not the highest level normal. of evolution in recovery. I think where have I attained in, a, I, a recovery enlightenment? I feel after like, less than two years. I, I think it's possible. <laughs> I mean, look, there's a million stories in the AA Big Book and, and elsewhere that talk about spontaneous spiritual awakenings where all of a sudden the obsession is lifted, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it's entirely possible that you've had such an, an enlightening experience. And, you know, it's a they describe it as a psychic change. In other words, you just don't see the world in the same way. You don't, just like you're saying. And so I think that that's the hardest place to get somebody in recovery. It's something that happens on their own. It doesn't, it's not forced on them, you know. And, um, and this maybe gets them closer to that. I think the Sinclair method is great, and I think people should utilize it. But I think it's a good first step. I don't know if it's right. a, if, if it's an end point. I think if no. you if you were to improve on the Sinclair method, you would you would add on some, or you make counseling a part of it, and you get people to see that there is life beyond the bar. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know? I mean, I think this goes back to the whole addiction scale type of thing. Like, if you have a hundred people that do the Sinclair method. And I don't know, and uh, 50 out of the 100 just become normal drinkers, then 20 of them completely stop. And then another 10 of them get off of it and go crazy. Like, you know, Mm. you're still like reaching a lot of people and improving their lives. Maybe you don't bring them over to enlightenment, (laughs) but I feel like it's more possible with something like this. Yeah. I think it's it's helpful. I think it's a tool to put in your recovery toolbox. And I think for a lot of people who have this, well, one thing that Sinclair did sort of run down that I thought was interesting was the biological basis for the craving and basically saying that abstinence um, without addressing the fundamental neurological problem in the brain uh, is in a, stuck in a feedback loop where the craving just continues the more you're abstinent. And, and that's why people find it so hard. Um, I don't, you know, I guess he's done science on that. I guess it's supported by the <laughs> science. Done science, yeah. Um, but, but, go on. Okay, I was just going to say, you know, it seems as though this is an extremely helpful program for people to make that initial break with alcohol. Um, why isn't there greater support for it? Yeah, this is interesting. This is where it gets a little nefarious, one would even think, because it's very... Affordable, right? And then I'll truck some oh, pills. and they claim a success rate of seventy-eight percent. Which, but what is success? That you have less heavy days drinking. They talk about how they measure their success, uh, which that was one thing I did not make a note of. Unfortunately, well, what, you know, one of the the best proponents for uh, the Sinclair method is this. One, um, she was the former chief probation officer and prosecutor. Her name is Helen Herberts. And I'm going to try and play this clip that I captured of her. But she really, I mean, she says, she says it all. Um, And here it is. And begin. Prosecutors are supposed to be reducing crime and protecting public safety. And we were addressing only part of it. 
The judicial system doesn't utilize the Sinclair method per se, but Helen Harberts uses naltrexone with great success. Our justice system was designed to deal with criminals, but what's in our justice system is addicts who commit crimes. And there's a big difference between a criminal who uses drugs and an addict who commits crimes. Yeah. Normally a person who would have like a first time DUI, the minute the hand go on, they get it, and they won't be back. There's a very small percentage of people who come back again. When you start to see a relatively high blood alcohol level and you see priors, those people represent a tremendous public safety risk. They are among the scariest of the criminal justice Maybe. population. This is a little long, but what she says toward the end here is important. Mm -hmm. The problem with sending people to prison for these offenses is that nothing changes. So the minute they hit the door, that brain says, dude, we gotta have beer. We gotta go drink now. Now, treatment is not fun, and it is not easy. There are some drugs, including alcohol, where the cravings are almost impossible. It's like watching people with their fingernails dragging on a blackboard. You can see them, they're just trying to hold on. They're in agony. The cravings are driving them nuts. There is a medication called naltrexone that you can give these people, which stops the cravings. You give them this pill, and it's gone. It's gone. So I played that entire thing, and we got interrupted by a phone call the one time I'm playing a freaking clip, and I'm very sorry. Um, is she, the way she talks about it, with such wisdom, experience, and mm -hmm. knowledge. Like, when someone like her is talking, you know what she's saying is true from her experience. And she's someone who is in the probation, dealing with drug court. Like, she, like her opinion, I feel like, is more valuable than a lot of people in uh, recovery industry. You know, because mm -hmm. she wasn't making millions off of this stuff. She was a public servant. Right. Um I mean, her, her job is to try and keep people from going to, well, her job is to put people in jail, but I, I assume she's also interested in keeping them out of jail at the same time. But yeah, I agreed. I was impressed by her. Um, yeah. I mean, she's probably one of the, and, and I had a probation officer um, who was more like him than a punitive one. And that is so important that, you know, people in uh, probation who are in drug court and who are dealing with addicts, uh, one of her points, which is, you know, something I've, I've felt, but I couldn't put it into words is there's a big difference between a drug addict committing crimes and mm -hmm. a criminal who does drugs. Yes. I mean, it sounds like a distinction without a difference, but it, it really, really is true. And they have to sort of figure out which is which when deciding how to deal with people. But, um, you know, and if, so if, if she, who was dealing with this on a daily basis professionally for 40 years or whatever it is, and she sees, uh, I mean, I think it's amazing that they were able to use naltrexone, you know, from her, from her spot, because she's not a doctor. I don't know how they compelled people to take it. Uh, maybe they worked with a court doctor or something. Yeah, that's probably how. she was like, our recidivism rate is like a million times less. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, she, she thought it was uh, miraculous. And she says in a different clip, which I'm not going to play, because <laughs> I have to get my process down a little better with that. But she, she talks about how, 
now, these days, they don't come back. They go back to society. They become tax-paying citizens. And they're like the people, she said, who don't get it and keep repeat offending mm-hmm. uh, with alcohol and drug crimes are the most lethal uh, criminals, uh, so to speak. They're the most lethal threat right. to society that there is because they're driving around you know, in a car wasted or you know, drug violence. <laughs> Yeah. So this uh, is clutch that they do this. So the courts want to use it. The problem is doctors aren't prescribing it because doctors aren't familiar with it. Why aren't doctors familiar with this drug? Because they can't make any, the drug companies can't make any money off it? It's bizarro because... I mean, I assume something's changed from 2016 to 2020. I mean, I think there's been more press about... uh, naltrexone and, and that sort of thing, especially as the opiate crisis intensified. I think people were ta- are taking a second look at it, but... Um, well, naltrexone itself is... The, okay, the only place I was ever able to get prescribed naltrexone was a specialty psychiatrist mm-hmm. who was like certified in it or also did suboxone treatment. What I found was my GP, my general practitioner, had no knowledge of it, really. And when they have, when they're not a specialist in a medication... They never want to prescribe right. it. I couldn't even get Prozac from my GP. I had to see a psychiatrist because she said it's not my specialty. Um, and so most people, they think they talk to their general practitioner and whatever they say is it. And the general practitioner doesn't advise them to speak to the specialist and give them a referral, which is what they should do if they're not going to be educated on it. Because when you do get into a spot with like a psychiatrist, like I had to interact with, then they know all about it. They don't know the Sinclair method per se, but they know naltrexone, Vivitrol. So we've spoken in the past uh, about the recovery industry and how their tip, uh, a lot of it is motivated by financial gain towards the people that run rehab centers and so forth. Do rehab centers, does the rehab industry want Something that's seventy-eight percent effective—that's cure that cures people. I, I don't see why they wouldn't. If if I I mean look I do see why they would. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but if your whole mission is to to say that you're helping people get off of drugs and live productive lives, if you could legitimately say we've got a seventy percent you know rate of you know isn't that a biz- better business model uh, than um, the revolving door you know where these same. Well, I don't think it is a better business model because you can't you can't gouge. For the medication, and once people are done with their ninety-day stay, if they're on Sinclair, then they're not coming back. This is the same industry that sends people out into skid rows to to drag pay addicts to come to treatment, so they can milk the insurance system for all it's worth. So, yeah, I, I don't think they're particularly interested in in helping people. Well, I mean, <laughs> listen, in my experience uh, at the various outpatients and inpatients. Um, they pushed Vivitrol quite hard on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, in fact, at Seafield Mineola, uh, no, not Seafield Mineola, it was Seafield, the inpatient in West Hampton. Um, there, in the entire 28-day program was actually designed to, by the end of it, you before they discharge you, they wanted to give you the Vivitrol shot and essentially inoculate you. Um, and so that was kind of where it all moved towards. Mm. Um, so naltrexone was a big part of at least my patient. Yes, that's the difference. Right. Um, opiates, it's like an answer to prayers for everybody. But even though initially Vivitrol was developed or naltrexone was developed to handle alcohol cravings, once they discovered that it was blocking opiate receptors, it was like, holy shit, holy grail. We can like 
like like a vaccine for opiate addiction, you know? And so the, the craving stuff and the even cocaine, there's studies showing that it helped reduce cravings for cocaine because it what it does is uh, you have these little vibrating cells, you know, in your brain, the way that it was described to me, and they're, they're gelatinous. And when you're craving, it's shaking. Right. right. And what the Vivitrol does is it hardens it so it doesn't shake, and therefore you f- don't feel as much craving. I wish we could get... Uh, a diagram for that to put on the show notes. Maybe we can find it. But it, it's an actual physical action uh, of this drug. It's mm. really physically stopping the action of craving. So given that it's um, ostensibly so effective at tr- treating alcoholism, if it's prescribed the way Sinclair, um, the Sinclair method suggests, uh, you would think that an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous would be all over this thing well, because it's so effective. Nothing that they do involves medication, and they're very careful to stay out of that as much as they can. Now, the members will say to you, some of them will have opinions on it, but the official stance of AA is they don't have an opinion on any outside uh, politics or whatever, including like what doctors are saying. Like They stick to, this is what works, this is the program, everything else is outside of AA. So they, okay. they're not in a place, like I would, as a member of AA, have to be the one when I'm sharing to be like, listen, AA has been great for me, but what really is helping me too is this Vivitrol. And if I have a sponsee or, and then I have to spread that word, but AA as a whole can't like come out and support uh, a medication. Because it's not in the book that was written in 1930. Right. Understood. But, yeah, but um, here's something, this is apropos. The opening of the opening quote of this documentary is from AA, and it goes as follows, and it's, it's very telling. Quote, Physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree that there is no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. That's what... Bill Wilson, founder right. of AA, 1939. So what if this is it? Well, Bill, is, Bill, I think, would have been open to it. He was doing all those experiments with niacin sure. and doing uh, the LSD thing as well. Um, right. So he was certainly not adverse to using medication to treat alcoholism, but he was operating in the, the 30s and 40s and 50s when yeah. there was no medication. Like, Do you think he would have done a whole chapter on naltrexone? <laughs> I, I think he would have. Yeah, I, and, and I think we need to be open to that. The problem, um, the problem is it sort of bypasses the first step, right? Because it's, it's your, right. They talk about taking on, it's a hundred percent empowerment for you and you're drinking through medication. And there's a lot in there that AA just doesn't agree with. I don't think AA agree. If, if AA thinks that it's a spiritual malady, you right. know, I don't know. Anyway, I, I don't want to get into no, but the they, AA I mean, thing but so they much. made a point of putting this at the beginning. That's they why put I said it, it. They right. put it at the very beginning. They put it at the beginning to, to demonstrate that, this might be the thing right. that, w- that, that Bill was open to the medication. Very, yes. yeah, he had Dr. Silkworth write the doctor's opinion. Like, why did Bob and Bill want to have the support of someone prominent in the field? Like, as such as it was, he was the head of that hospital, which I can't remember the name of, Dr. Silkworth. You know, they had an expert doctor to legitimize their program, essentially. Wasn't Dr. Bob a doctor? He was, but he wasn't like the, Dr. Silkworth was like the preeminent. Oh, he was the addiction you know, guy, addiction doctor, not addiction. It was well, alcoholism, right. and, yeah. uh, and so he really had all the credibility to uh, say something about it. And uh, initially, he was it was anonymous his doctor's opinion in the first edition, and I think by the third edition, when he realized that this was such a good thing that he didn't mind having his name associated with it, <laughs> then I, right. I think it's third edition when it started, but I could be wrong. They started putting his name in. 
Well, I mean, Claudia Christian, you know, who made the, the documentary is so sold on it that she's basically dedicated her whole life now to, to advancing the Sinclair method. And, um, you know, Did she, she helps tweet me back. She helps people get naltrexone. She's, um, I'm trying she to see speaks she... to, you know, tens of people a day. I mean, she's very, uh, very engaged in this because it was so successful for her. Um, she wrote me back on Did Twitter. She? Um, she said, wow, this is so cool. Look, I, I wrote Claudia on Twitter and, uh, cause we do have a Twitter account. Okay. And she, I wrote something like, um, you know, we're talking about you on the show tomorrow. And she said, I hope you mention my nonprofit. Oh, let's do it's it. It's called C3 Foundation. Uh, it's C3 Foundation. That's C-T-H-R-E-E foundation.org. And, um, I don't know what they do. Op- options save lives is the hashtag. And Claudia, if you listen to this, um, I wish we could have gotten you on, but um, we, you know, we're having a pretty good discussion here about your documentary. And um, <laughs> we will um, put this in the show notes. And if anybody's interested in what Claudia Christian is up to uh, relating to her foundation, please visit her at cthreefoundation.org. So uh, the three C Foundation. Um I'm taking a look at their website. It says, the purpose of the three, the C3 Foundation is to support individuals struggling with alcohol addiction through education and awareness. Uh, in accordance with our motto, options save lives, we believe that successful recovery requires a multifaceted approach. What are you going to put that on so, top of it or something? All right. No, I'm just going to... Just let it roll. I was just pretending that you were still in the room and not in the bathroom. And then and I, I come just back reading, and I'm like, and you're like what are you doing? I back from the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so check out the uh, link in the show notes. Uh, you know, maybe the Sinclair method's right for you if you're having struggling with uh, intense cravings and you find that that's an impediment to uh, taking the first step on your road to recovery. Yeah, do your research. Um, I would say go make sure you talk to your doctor, but it sounds to me like there's a lot, most doctors don't know about this, but I'm sure maybe through her foundation, they help with that or um, watch this documentary though. It's called one little pill. Uh, I got it through Amazon. It's, you know, rental or purchase. Three ninety nine. If you do the standard def, do us a favor. And if you watch it and you listen to this discussion, message us on Facebook, join our private group and um, start a discussion. That's what we're trying to do here. That's the whole point of the show As we're not saying this is right or wrong. We're saying let's investigate. Right. And having said that, what time is it now? It is time for Recovery in the News. I can't get used to that. Um, you know, our shows are getting long. I know. I know. It's people, fun, though. I love people it. People listen to more of us every week. I hope they like it. So a bit fun. of a sad story this week from the Mercury News. Um, San Jose, I believe. San Jose. San Jose Mercury News. Uh, it's an opinion article, but the title is How Addiction to Whippets Nitrous Oxide Killed My Life Partner. Um, apparently during the pandemic, this guy's... Um, Wife, girlfriend, not sure which. Um, Life partner. Acquired thousands of canisters uh, because the smoke shops out in California would deliver these whippets to your house. If, for people that don't know, uh, nitrous oxide, the kind of thing that you can make your own whipped cream at home with or that's in the Ready Whip can, right. or you could buy in balloons in Grateful Dead parking lots, 
But yeah, exactly. For five dollars each, no discounts for for volume. Um, that's good. Is and the stuff you get. It's the same stuff you get at the dentist's office. Gets you a pretty high. Actually, the sound is more like. Right. Yeah, That's right. Uh, also called hippie crack. That's uh, because <laughs> crack. it really is. I thought really, crack was just hippie crack. Don't hippies do crack too? Uh, they need a special. No, crack? hippies don't like the powder drugs, man. No for kidding. The most I, part. I didn't um, really hang out with hippies. Just, but anyway, so I guess this woman Amanda uh, acquired thousands of little. You ever see the the whippets? They're in like these yeah. little cartridges that you would uh, like use to make salts or water or, or, or it goes cream. in like a gun you know yeah. like a CO2 and gun and you can fill up your own balloon or do what I used to do and just put the thing right in my mouth and shoot shoot it right into my mouth wow it gets very cold I've never even seen one of those in person um, Dentists use it as a sedative in the kitchen. It's a foaming agent for making whipped cream. Ooh. It's also a recreational drug with deadly potential. How do I get that? You can I can make my own whipped cream with like a nitrous oxide container. You, you Isn't to, it illegal? You, no, you can buy you anybody can buy nitrous oxide. Really? Yeah, I never knew that. You can, but you have to. You get it in these little right. It's not like that little big canisters. tank. No, that those, you that, see at the you know, wharf rats have. Right. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not the wharf rats. Not the wharf rats. They're friends. Um, so. You know, I remember going to head shops in the village when I was a kid, and, and you know, one of the drugs that you could buy without getting ripped off in Washington Square Park was like these little whippet containers, and you could buy like a, a dispenser that'll pierce the top, and then you can just like suck on the end of it huh. and get it into your head, and like, it gets you high for like I don't know five thirty seconds, seconds yeah, or 30? something. You know, I, I never. But they sell them in like boxes it. of twelve. So you, I've never seen this. Are before. you kidding me? Is it legal now? Yeah, you can go get it at Utopia. What? I've yeah. been to Utopia a thousand times. And you never abused that particular in, in No, no. I, mean, I even bought fake urine there. And I went to the, the the whole sex shop downstairs where they sell the fake urine. It's like really awkward. And you they must have to be, show your ID and shit. They must be very happy uh, with the legalization of weed in New York. Because all of a sudden they can bring all that stuff out of the basement to the first floor. Yeah. You know? um, um, but anyway, bless, back, to, back to this poor woman. Um, so... Uh, Amanda Crosby is her name. She was she was um, bipolar, bat- battling a severe form of bipolar disease. Um, but she started using nitrous oxide to con- offset the major lows that she had from um, from from a bipolar disorder. Wow. And her husband went off to uh, he was from I don't know a country that was very far away, some India or something like that. And he went over for cousin's wedding, and he got delayed because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And he got back, and he found his wife like dead on the floor, Ugh. surrounded by like a thousand empty whipped cream yeah, canisters. She was like, medicated properly and had a care of a doctor. Yeah. Would she have done that? Maybe she did. I don't know if it says whether or not she was seeing uh, a psychiatrist. So the, or yeah, she was, but the mood swings were so intense that modern medicine was not sufficient. I mean, so chances that she wasn't taking her medication as that prescribed. That could be possible. And then the impact of the pandemic-related isolation. Sure. And she, was she drinking alcohol on that medication? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, they, Smoking they and taking well, birth control pills. Con- considering this, that this was written by her grieving husband, I don't think he's going to highlight her. Uh, no. You know her other stuff, but uh, I just found it crazy because you know I've done a lot of nitrous oxide over the course of my lifetime because it mm. was a big thing in 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 jam band parking lots. There's always some big guy oh. with a tank. Here I thought I was explaining it to you the, the other day, but I'm like, no, 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 nitrous oxide. You get it? I was like explaining yeah. it. And like, I just assumed. No, no, that was I. You know, and even in, I would go to shows even like five years ago at the Westbury Music Fair, and they had a guy a guy with a tank in the parking lot, you know, just filling up balloons. Sometimes I forget that when I'm looking at you, I'm really looking at you know this former hippie crackhead <laughs> like 
I clean know. up nice. You do, you do. Yeah. You, you got this air about you. Yeah. This uh, Juris Doctorate air. But I just, uh, it never occurred to me that you could die from that stuff. No. And I, and I don't think a lot of people do. I think it's maybe a, a handful a year. Probably the same but, number of people who died from the COVID vaccine. Mm. Six out of 10 million or something. Yeah. Oh, we don't want to get into that, do we? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just no. had, my, I had my second shot list. So. You did? Yeah. That's good. It's yeah. good. I was sick for a day and now I'm fine. Now you're fine. Yeah. So, uh, you know, condolences to, to this guy and, you know, I thank, and I thank you for raising the awareness yeah. uh, of the dangers of nitrous oxide and whippets. I mean, I, yeah, along with that is the canned air. I was abusing that for, mm, I went through a, a canned air phase when I like discovered, you know, the, um, if you don't know what canned air is, it's like for cleaning dust. It's a dust off type of thing. I have a couple thing. cans at home. How would I go about abusing that? You just put it in the mouth, suck it in. Really? Yeah, it's awful. That sounds uh, unhealthy. It is unhealthy. And it only lasted about a month until my wife like found a couple of them. She's like, <laughs> what the fuck are you doing? And I'm like, nothing. And I was you supposed to say be, you were a 10 year old. I so. was supposed to be sober <laughs> at the time. And I'm like, this doesn't count. I didn't buy this, you know, on the street. I'm God, does it CVS or, um, but it, it's, it's, it's real, man. I, Did you ever read fear and loathing in Las Vegas? Hunter Thompson? No, I'm going to, I'm going to now. I mean, I, now it'd be kind of anticlimactic. No. But I read it as a kid and, and I want to. one of the drugs they were abusing was ether. So Ooh. you would pour ether into a rag and, and yeah, sniff yeah. it. And as <laughs> soon as I got to the Bronx, I went up to Hector's record store and you could buy the ether and the empty crack vials in the bag. It was like drug dealer supply company. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and I bought, I saw a bottle of ether and I was like, I'll take one of those. Um, ether is a really interesting inhalant. Cause sounds you, like something Monty Burns from the <laughs> Simpsons would do. <laughs> right. Yes, it is an ether. You pour it on a rag, you sniff the rag and it, it, this is the craziest effect. Like it gets you like high and it also makes your asshole really warm. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Strange thing. That's an actual thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, and that's recovery in the news. Yeah. All right. <laughs> which brings us to, wait, which, which brings us to this week. In weird. Bigfoot allegedly interviewed by phone during a bizarre conference address. <laughs> a very strange scene unfolded at a Sasquatch conference over the weekend when, while on stage, a researcher purportedly spoke to the legendary cryptid on the phone and <laughs> shared the conversation <laughs> with people in attendance. The bizarre moment reportedly occurred this past Saturday at the Nebraska Bigfoot Conference in the city of Hastings as keynote speaker Igor Burstev <laughs> detailed his work investigating the creature in his native Russia. During the presentation, he surprised the audience by calling a Russian colleague who is allegedly in the presence of a Bigfoot for an impromptu interview with the famed cryptid. Hello, this is my friend. <laughs> his name is Siskuch. He wants to talk to you. <laughs> and during the presentation, he surprised by who? Um, during the hard-to-fathom conversation, Bustev translated the Sasquatch's unique method, message, language, which might be best described as a series of guttural squawks <laughs> and shared insights from the exclusive, elusive creature, specifically that it loathes poachers and people who befoul its forest habitat. <laughs> Alas... 
<laughs> I love what he says. Alas, alas, since the curious phone call was apparently arranged by Burstev at the proverbial 11th hour, the sound system at the event was not equipped for such a momentous occasion, and much of the bewildered audience found the entire experience fairly hard to decipher, with some theorizing that the live conversation may not have been entirely on the level. No. I think everybody was on mushrooms. That's my <laughs> hey, diagnosis. He want to say, uh, <laughs> stop poaching him. He, uh, what does he say? <laughs> what uh, he say here is uh, he want uh, to girlfriend. Um, I can imagine this guy translating. Like, Can you imagine the, the scene in that in that room with this going? <laughs> with this going? <laughs> I can't even. Yeah. Uh, and that's the bizarre scene. And I love to think of them, these people there as bewildered. I feel like everybody at a Sasquatch con- conference is bewildered. <laughs> before like, they even get there. <laughs> so they're just bewildered. So that is Weak and Weird. All right. That about does it for today, folks. And Oy, thank you so much for it. listening. Visit us at middleagesrecovery.com and check out our new merch page. Join the discussion on our exclusive and private Facebook group. If you mm. need to talk, don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. Yes. Check out our show notes uh, and find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Tweet us a twat. You twit. Apple Podcasts and wherever fine podcasts are handed out. Five-star reviews will be read on the air and we will see you next time. We will. And as we say, non proficiat perfectum. Progresso, not <laughs> not perfection. See you next time. <laughs> Be good. Bye. Bye.